preaching is found in Psalm 73, and particularly verses 13 to 15. Psalm 73, as we continue our series on this psalm, verses 13 to 15, the theme being faith and the perceived vanity of piety. Of course, as we've seen already, there is an assertion of God's goodness that starts the psalm, and yet it's introductory because the psalmist is acknowledging, verse 2, that he had come to a point where he had well nigh slipped, not just stumbling, but slipping, as it were, unto his demise. And the theme that was so before him and upon his consciousness was, as he calls it, verse 3, the prosperity of the wicked. And again, you see it there as he mentions in verse 12, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. We consider now verses 13 to 15. Here are those three verses, Psalm 73, 13, 14, and 15. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. These three verses. We know, as we've seen, that fundamentally what's before us is the wrestling of faith. And so it is, as we've uh, read the whole of the psalm previously and commented, that it's ultimately verse 17 which shows the transition, that he draws near to God and he understood therein. He doesn't see therein. That is, it's not as if he draws near to God and all of a sudden, instantly, the wicked start dying, suffering, etc., Rather, what he means is he perceives what will come to them ultimately. That it is that they shall be judged, whereas, as he'll go on to say, those who have trusted in the Lord and walked with Him have both the comfort of God's presence with them in the here and now and in the hereafter. And so there's this transition from great difficult uh, heaviness to some of the most buoyant expressions of faith ever recorded in the Scriptures. But you'll notice in verses 13 through 15, we have Asaph recognizing his struggle with the question whether piety or godliness was worth it. Where there is faith, there will always be piety or godliness because godliness flows out of faith, which faith, of course, is the fruit of Grace, the one who trusts in God, will fear God, not in that servile way, but in that loving and reverent manner of true godliness. And yet, wherever there is faith and godliness in this world, there will be various degrees and seasons of affliction. And this, however clear the Bible is on this, however much in times of peace we acknowledge it, it tends to catch us off guard when it catches us. Trial comes... And instantly we're thrown back upon our heels, we're, un, uh, we're, we're off balance, and we struggle. Well, doubtlessly Asaph is feeling something of that now. You'll notice the words, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Heart and hands, the inward and the outward. 
that which I have done to keep my heart pure, I have now been brought to think in light of the prosperity of the wicked that it's in vain. And likewise, that which I have done to keep my hands innocent, I am tempted to think that that too is vain. So there's a whole scope of piety in those two expressions, heart and hands, the inward and the outward. And yet as he witnesses these things, he's struggling. And it's not just because the wicked are prospering, but verse 14 says, because all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. So as I see the wicked prosper, that in and of itself is a trial as we considered last week. But here's what makes it doubly so. I who am seeking in sincerity, not just in a formal manner outwardly in the sight of men, but inwardly cultivating godliness, cultivating love, and cultivating purity, I'm actually suffering. I'm facing increasing daily trials. And yet you'll see as well that he expresses a check against his unbelief when he says, if I say or if I should say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Or as the margin notes, had dealt treacherously with the generation of thy children. The expression is meaning, I will have disregarded and I will have misrepresented the those who are your children. And so in other words, my complaint, my refutation, my rejection of the truth would be against the clear testimony of others of your children who have suffered and who are blessed still. What we want to see is that faith is challenged by the trials that fall upon those who are godly. It's a simple truth, and yet it's a truth that must be reckoned with. When this happens, the thing that's being tested is not merely whether we're going to keep on in the way that we're going, but rather if inwardly, which is the fountain of whatever we do outwardly, if inwardly we hold fast to the assessment that piety, godliness, the fruit of faith, God Himself is worthy of such trials. And so, always keep this in mind whenever you encounter adversity for the sake of following Christ or if in simple circumstances, difficulties come and it starts to raise certain questions in your mind. Fundamentally, what's being tested, yes, is your faith, but your faith in God. Your faith in the question of, is God worthy? Is my life being denying of various lusts and comforts and ways of ease, is it worth doing that when I encounter difficulty after difficulty after difficulty? Well, three things to help us. The first being faith and piety. Secondly, sight and piety. And thirdly, faith's answer uh, to the affliction. So faith, sight, and faith's answer. The first, faith and piety. be helpful to give some sense of what piety is beyond what we've noted. You can see it clearly in the text when he speaks of the cleansing of his heart and the washing of his hands in innocency or purity. And this, of course, helps us see some aspect of piety. The word that is often translated godliness is a word that in other translations would be translated piety. 
the word is a word referring to good reverence. So in the Greek, in the New Testament, where you see godliness, you have a Greek word that means good reverence or good worship. And the idea is that it's a sincere reverence of the Lord. And so you'll remember Paul's rebuke to some who had a form of godliness, and yet they denied the power, right? So outwardly, they had an appearance of reverence, but inwardly, they had refused the vital source of it. Well, you can see here that with Asaph the psalmist, there is the reality of godliness being acknowledged. There was a cleansing of his heart and a washing of his hands. This is a very helpful summary of piety, of godliness, namely the inward purity and the outward conformity. So where there is godliness, there will be these two things. There will be a heart that fears God, but it is not just a heart that fears God that moves the tongue and the lips to say, I fear God. It's a heart fearing God that moves the hands to keep them away from sin and to apply them to the cause of righteousness. And so Christ, of course, teaches this when he speaks of those who abide in him and they do what? They bring forth fruit, which are good works. And so those who abide in Christ by faith will be those fruitful branches who bring forth good works. And of course, Christ says that our Father, his Father in heaven is pleased with our good works. This is something that honors God. And this is the essence of piety. It is both the inward purity and the outward conformity to God's law. So when we think about piety or godliness, it's not just pious desires, right? That's essential, but many people can have warm feelings. Many people can even have something like uh, God-oriented feelings, which are ultimately uh, passing their natural movements of the soul impressed by the awe of something that is spectacular, perhaps some uh, spectacular sign in creation, perhaps even reading the Bible or listening to a sermon and being overawed by the weight of divine glory and being brought to acknowledge something of God's glory in their own expression. But where there's true piety, those affections move the body. And so hands are kept back from sin and they are applied to righteousness. Well, we start here because you'll notice what's being questioned. He's starting to say, I've done this in vain. Truly, verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. We have to understand the nature of piety to see what's being challenged. But before we go further, we have to see piety's relation to faith. How is it that piety or godliness is related to faith? Well, piety is the fruit of faith. It is that, of course, faith is that which lays hold of Christ, John 15, abiding in Him. And it is Christ through faith which then brings forth an abundance of good works. You can see this in a different vein from Second Peter when he speaks of the promises and how it is that God, verse 3, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. There's the word, piety. But how is it that we are brought to 
have this godliness. It's through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And it's He that has given us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So notice something. It's God who gives it graciously, and yet He does so in His grace by providing us promises that we lay hold of by faith. And so the chain of graces that follow, that we're to add faith to our faith virtue and virtue knowledge and so on, is quite clear. The fundamental point is this. God provides us all things needed for our growth and godliness in Christ, but the way in which we experience and come to lay hold of them is in accordance to the promises. The promises are always central to true piety. Whereas the law informs us and instructs us, corrects us and reproves us, the law does not give us life. The law does not give us piety. If we're pious, it will be that our lives, our thoughts, our desires will be in accordance to the law's regulations. But it's Christ who actually gives us life. And it's faith which lays hold of Christ by those promises God has provided us that is productive of the piety. And so piety, in other words, is the fruit of faith. And faith, of course, is the fruit of grace. We saw Peter testify so clearly, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ doesn't say, well, it's good that you've exercised your reason and have understood what everyone rationally should simply come to understand. Of course, it is reasonable. But Christ says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. It's not just the profession of orthodoxy, but it's Peter acknowledging that he's the Christ upon whom he's trusting. And so he has the saving faith which Christ attributes to the Father's regenerating work. Well, this is all necessary for us to see in order for us to see what Asaph is struggling with. So here's Asaph who has had a lifetime, however long, of cultivating godliness. What does that mean? Well, at some point Asaph had been regenerated. And at that point he had trusted in the coming mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of God's elect. And in that grace he had begun cultivating not just outward ceremonial righteousness, but inward real godliness, which then expressed itself in outward conformity to God's law. And you can see the contrast when you go back to the previous verses, when the godless, notice for instance, as he says just before, he mentions the ungodly, the impious, who prosper in the world. What are they? Well, they're set on wickedness. Their hands are given to it. Inwardly, they're full of conceit and pride, and they speak against God, right? But he, by God's grace, is contrary to that way. He is devoted to God. He is consecrated to God, body and soul. And in other words, Asaph had known what it is to put in practice what Paul exhorts of us all in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, when he says, Ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So Asaph was doing that. 
But the difficulty that he now comes face to face with is this trial. Because as he's doing that, he's experiencing something very difficult. So we move secondly to sight and piety. And here is where the trial begins. It is because of what he sees. We've already spent time on what he saw in the wicked, right? So you go, for instance, from verse 3 onward through verse 12, and you have these bookends. Verse 3, the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 12, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. So we've seen that. He's seen. Sight has seen, as it were, outward provisions to the godless. They don't have difficulties. Now, we said, as we've noted in the Bible, that this isn't universally true. There are wicked men who do have extreme difficulties, heavy trials. But there is something that we see even in our day. There are literally, and it's staggering to our mind, billionaires who are openly blasphemous. It's not like they're hiding it. They may put on a religious show in some Eastern mysticism, but they literally take God's name in vain. They blaspheme the one true way of salvation. And they give portions of their money in order to support causes which are diametrically opposed to the cause of God. Right? This is true. We see it in our day. Asaph saw it in his. The wicked are prospering. And it's not just that they're eking out something. It's that they're exponentially exploding in outward blessings. And so you hear about some that are full of all sorts of open uh, wickedness. And they, they speak of going to their summer house and their winter house. And you know they've got this house across the sea and this place there. And they've got the newest cars. And you go to their garage and you see car after car after car and their private jet and all of these things. And it's easy for us to start to see what Asaph was struggling with. They are, in an earthly way, flourishing. Their body is fit. They take pictures of themselves, post it on Instagram, and you would think that they have a perfect bill of health. Their uh, uh, cupboard is full. All that they could want is there. And this is what Asaph sees in his own culture and in his own day. But the other thing that he sees... And in our text, more directly, is he sees the lot of the godly in this life. Now again, just as with the wicked, it's true of the godly, there are those who are godly who prosper in earthly ways. But notice what he says of the lot of the godly personal to himself when he says, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Now, You'll see two expressions, the plaguing and the chastening, both of which is speaking of deep difficulty. We don't know precisely the circumstances facing Asaph, and the Lord's wisdom has kept that from us, but it does allow us to see the depth of his agony. And this is something that should speak to us, because when we face affliction, something happens where we feel the depth of agony. Now, we may say in some ways things that would be um, in, in, improper as if we're, the, we're agonizing more than anyone else has agonized. But the very fact of agony and difficulty in that way impresses upon our souls the load of pain. 
And this can be caused by any number of circumstances from job issues to health issues to abuse issues to uh, uh, other matters that would come unto our lives, body, soul, emotions, relations, etc. He's plagued and chastened. But notice what surrounds those two expressions. He speaks of all the day long. And he also speaks of every morning. In other words, it's happening all the time. It's not as if I can get away. Job will himself speak of the Lord having fenced him in. He can't go forward. He can't turn to the right. He can't turn to the left. He can't go backward. He can't go up. He can't go down. He is stuck and made to sit in the filth and off-scouring of agonizing affliction. Job is a perfect example of this. Everything that was good in this life was taken from him. Everything that was good in this life was taken from him. His children, his estate, his friends, his wife, and the intimacy there, his health and his body, everything's taken from him. And he has no direction to go to. All of the artificial things we think, well, if this happens, then plan B, plan C, plan D, and so on. All of the letters of the alphabet are erased. Job has no option. And this is something of what Asaph's feeling. I have it all day long. And I have it greeting me every morning. This is the lot that the godly experience, at least on occasion. To be fair, as noted, there are seasons of mercies and blessings. There are seasons of laughter and joy. There are psalms, of course, that speak of uh, great encouragements along the way. But everyone who will live righteous in Christ Jesus will suffer some degree of persecution, some degree of affliction, and we ought to remember that the lightest degree is sufficient to upend us. We saw recently Peter's tears flowed earnestly because he stumbled before a maiden girl. A girl who says, you're one of his disciples, and he stumbles. The slightest temptation can cause us to stumble. The slightest affliction can cause us great grief. And when sight turns its eyes upon the things of this world, it is then that we're playing in a field that we are not to play in. Because when we start to judge by the temporal things of this life, what happens is faith becomes veiled. And this is what Asaph is struggling with. In fact, you'll see it in the correction that follows from verse 17 onward. Instead of looking at the temporal matters, he turns to the eternal one and sees the everlasting future. That's where faith lives. Faith lives upon God. Faith lives upon what's to come. Faith lives upon God's Word. It doesn't live upon what is seen in this world. But of course, when sight takes the lead, piety starts to waver. Piety starts to be questioned. And we know this by experience. We encounter something and how different and varied the circumstances can be. Something comes that would challenge no one else, but it challenges us. And instantly, we're entertaining questions of how am I going to go on? Is it worth reading the Bible? Is it worth coming to worship? Is it worth denying this relationship, pursuing that relationship, whatever it might be? Why are those questions flourishing? 
because our sight has turned on the things of this world and our faith has fluttered away from living in the world of the eternal, even the eternal God. This is what Asaph has done. Look what I'm experiencing. Now let's be clear. Sight is seeing something that's real. He's not making this up. He's not imagining something. He's not saying, I see this, but someone else would come alongside and say, no, Asaph, you're not seeing it as you should see it as you measure the things of this world. He really is suffering. And the wicked really are prospering. But the problem is, sight perceives the lot of this life for the godly. And if that's what we're going to measure, piety will be questioned and ultimately put off. This raises the question of is godliness, sincere love to God, trust in Christ, worth the trials and afflictions I bear? And of course, there is the false answer that the prosperity so-called gospel provides which says, well, if you have faith, you'll flourish in this world. And if ever there was a group of professed Christians that need the Psalter, it's prosperity teachers. They need to live in the Psalms. They need to come face to face with the Psalms that show forth not only the suffering of the Son of Man, but the suffering of those who belong to the Son of Man. And moreover, if ever there's a group of professing Christians that need the Bible, it's them. Because as we read in Matthew 16, Christ says, if you would be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And if you would seek to save your soul, you'll lose it. But if you lose your soul for my sake, you will save it. Brethren, it's easy to pick on those who are so patently erroneous. Brethren, we need the same counsel when we start to question, we have to come back and say, what am I looking at? Because what we'll discover is with Asaph, our faith is faltering, our piety is being questioned, our piety is drooping because our sight has turned to the temporal things instead of faith landing and remaining upon the everlasting things. This leads us to the answer of faith to this challenge. Thirdly, then, faith's answer. You notice the text begins this, which will be completed throughout the rest of the psalm. The first thing that faith does when sight has taken over for a season is it checks sight. That is, it puts up a barrier and says, no, 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 this is off. This is wrong. And brethren, a believer has this, we say in some ways, instinctively. There's something within us, we say, that lets us know we're off in our thinking. And though that may not heal us or give us the strength needed, yet it's a helpful start to the process. And you see that in the text when he says, if I say or if I should say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. That is, I will have dealt treacherously with them. I will have denied what the generation of thy children teach what the generation of thy children show. In other words, what he's saying is, my sight is teaching me something that's false. Now, we have examples of this. We pointed to Job already. And we saw Job suffering. And you can understand, of course, Job is thought to be the oldest book in the Bible. Representative, at least, of the oldest 
story in the Bible as a narrative. Now, if that's the case, you think of Job. All of his prosperity, it's taken from him, and then he's restored. One thing that that teaches us, of course, is if you were to measure Job's uh, uh, life just by the middle, you would have had a false measure, a false balance. But there are others. You think of those who suffered unto death and yet have the hope of a better resurrection. Job himself, later in Job from where we read, will testify of standing on the earth and seeing his Redeemer. You have the hope of the resurrection testified in various psalms. What's the point that's being expressed? Well, just as Christ says, God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And where does He gather that from? It's when God Himself in the Old Testament says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Therefore, He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. What's the point? The whole of the Bible postulates this truth. The ultimate reward of faith and godliness is in the life to come. Now, it's less clear in the Old Testament, but we shouldn't overstate that. It is clear. It's just outdone by the supreme clarity of the New Testament in that Christ rises on, uh, from the dead and the clear teaching of the resurrection chapter after chapter after chapter in the New Testament. But the point is this. There is testimony in the Scriptures throughout which is reminding the believer that it's not this life which is the ultimate judge of whether faith is worth it or not. Just as Christ says, Matthew 16, that if you seek to save your soul in this life, you'll lose it. If you seek to lose your life in this life, in this, your soul in this life, you'll find it. So the Old Testament is confirming that again and again. And so you have things that are anticipating that. When you have the patriarchs desiring to be buried in the land of promise, they're anticipating that promise coming through. You have other anticipations as well. You have Enoch who walked with God and then was not, for the Lord took him. And you have other such things which are testifying of the world to come. All of this is before them. And what Asaph is reckoning with is this. My temporal measuring rod is countered by those who have suffered before me and by faith have overcome and whose testimony shine to my day as those who show forth that piety is worth it. We have something even clearer. It's not different in essence, but if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you have a whole chapter which is fundamentally answering this struggle because it's putting person after person after person in front of us who overcame by faith. And among them, of course, you have Moses. And Moses was one, verse 25, who chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, catch that, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses, of course, precedes Asaph. Asaph had Moses as an example. And he could look to Moses and say, look, just as Hebrews is telling us, he forsook the pleasures of Egypt. He chose to suffer affliction. And he did this because, notice again that language, 
he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Not just the the reproach of a principle, the reproach of some form of religion, but the reproach of the Messiah. Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And so Asaph is checking himself. And this is what faith does. It checks unbelief. It checks the message of sight and says, though your eyes see it, you're not seeing the whole thing. Incorporate in your assessment the lives of the godly who chose to suffer because they saw something better. Include in your gaze, if you can, all of the promises of God which extend beyond this life, you see. In other words, as faith checks itself, as faith checks sight, it also reviews the truth more fully. This is something that's fundamentally true. Faith has access to a broader scope of truth than reason and sight. Sight is limited to the temporal world. Sight is limited to what's here and now. But faith has access to the eternal truths of God given to us in the Scriptures. And faith laying hold of those things is able to review not just the message of this life, but the message of God which, who is eternal and His message regarding the everlasting life and the everlasting death, which of course will become clearer in the coming passages. But this is something for us to remember. When we find ourselves struggling, we ask ourselves, why am I struggling? Why am I becoming discouraged? Why am I facing this? Most of the time, what will happen is we'll discover there is a temporal reason to it. Now, it might be a temporal religious reason. It might be, Lord, I'm praying, and yet I'm still struggling with sin. But it's still time-bound. You can't say, I'm praying, and heaven's not real. You can't say, I'm praying, and Christ didn't die and rise again. Those objective truths remain true. Those everlasting truths remain true. And when we discover that, we're struggling because of a temporal, time-bound problem. Faith is able to gaze broader and is able to see further down the line and is able to incorporate into its assessment the truths that stretch into eternity. Whereas our sight is limited to the here and now, it's also limited to a very short uh, uh, scope of things that we can see. Faith, however, is able to launch into the heavens where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and is able to see into the Holy of Holies where our beloved Savior is. Faith reviews the whole truth. And so faith is then able to confirm that piety is well worth all of the sufferings. This is what will bring him to say that he was one who counted himself as a beast. Verse 21, as we'll get to, thus my heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. That's a word meaning kidneys. My inward parts. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. What's the point? Sight leads us to foolishness. Faith leads us to wisdom. Now let's be clear. Faith is not whimsical wishes. 
Faith is not thinking, well, I wish that were the case, and so that's what I'm going to choose to believe. Faith lays hold of the revelation of God in His Word and takes that alongside of all the temporal things. We don't deny the temporal things. We simply deny this, that the temporal can be the judge of the everlasting. Instead, the everlasting is the judge of the temporal. And this is something we know because of the last day. All of the rich who have flourished in their wickedness and have died in their wickedness, who have been thought great men, who have had buildings named after them, monuments erected to their memory, have had great estates that are upkept even to this day, if they have died in their sin and highly esteemed of man and woman, of various nationalities, for multiple generations, on the last day, every single creature will say, that man was a fool. Why? Because that man, whatever his service to community may have been, whatever philanthropic efforts that he undertook, was a man who failed to reckon with God regarding his soul. He chose the pleasures of Egypt over the afflictions of the reproach of Christ. He chose Egypt instead of Christ. He chose the world instead of Christ. He chose anything and everything over Christ. But remember what piety is. Piety is that good reverence that is sincerely, inwardly, and outwardly displaying purity and conformity to the will of God revealed in the Scriptures as it lays hold of by faith the promises of God in Christ made partakers of Christ And what will happen on the last day? Well, on the last day, whatever difficulties were experienced, had Job died before his body was restored, before his estate was restored, before he was married, before he had children, and all of these other things that follow, had he died upon the ash heap with a potsherd scraping his sores, the last day would have said that man was wise. Those who gave themselves to be burned instead of denying Christ. Those who decided privation and suffering is better than compromising Christ. Piety in its inward and outward totality will be shown to be the epitome of wisdom on the last day. But brethren, we can't see the last day right now. We can't even see tomorrow, of course. We can only see the present and look back to the past. But we can, by faith, look forward to the future. And this is something, as we'll see, that faith does. When he testifies, notice as uh, Asaph will express in verse 25, or in verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. So, brethren, as you think on these things regarding the perceived vanity of piety, One thing you can see is it's perceived only insofar as we judge with the measuring rod that is limited to the here and now. But faith takes up a better measurement. And it measures by the Word of God, by the practice and lives of past saints, and by the promises that God has given in His Word. So it may be that you this evening stand in a trial It may be that you face that which 
is nearly bringing your own feet to slip. You would be the first to admit it's not Job's measurement. It's not even seemingly Asaph's. But whatever it is, is causing me great difficulty. Well, here is something to learn. You can remember just by remembering this psalm that what you experience, however deep, however frequent, however regular, however long the duration, God has given us a psalm that acknowledges that. And there's an initial help that comes in seeing. You know, Calvin called the Psalter the anatomy of the soul. It's, it gives a psalm for every part and expression and experience of the Christian experience. And how helpful it is to see that when we feel ourselves overwhelmed, as if we could say all day long, and every morning it begins again, I'm plagued and chastened. Well, you have an honest assessment and statement of the same buried in the Psalters for your soul's help. But that's just the start. If you're in a trial, then it is that you have to raise these questions. Which measuring rod am I going to use? Am I going to use the measuring rod of the hour that is a lifetime? Or am I going to measure by that limitless rod, which is eternity? Am I going to measure by the inch of man's reason? Or am I going to measure by the immeasurable line of God's revelation? And of course, if we limit ourselves to an inch, if we limit ourselves to the moment, then we'll be led to start to question as Asaph did. But if we take up that which God has given us to measure these things well and rightly, then it is that we are given the encouragement not only to endure, but to endure with hope. So there's a world of difference between enduring and just getting by and you know, feeling all the pain and saying, oh, I guess I'll press on, versus as Asaph comes to, to endure with hope, expectation, gladness, because he saw that however much he suffers, and that should not be tritely assessed, but deeply considered howsoever much agony the believer faces as he follows Christ, howsoever tortuous the cross is that the Father places upon us to bear, howsoever much we must deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow Christ to the scoffings of men, the ridicule of an unbelieving generation and a compromised people, Howsoever much agony and pain there is in that, we will find ourselves to be confirmed that this is not only worthy, but it is a privilege. It is a privilege to deny myself to follow Christ. It is a privilege. This is what he launches into, as we'll see. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. And notice, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Brethren, if you are in such a trial this evening, here is where you must look. You must close your eyes to the false balance of this world and look again to God, who is indeed the truth. The last thing is to say, it may be that many such here this evening are not in such a trial. It's often the case that we regret our misspent good seasons. 
Well, if we're going to spend them well, we should take the seasons we have. And if it's faith, which ultimately is exercised by God's grace in Asaph to draw him to enjoy again the flourishing of his soul in the midst even of unchanged circumstances, then it's faith that we must cultivate when things are well. And so in other words, we don't need to wait for the trial to cultivate faith. We don't need to wait for the affliction to come before we start, as it were, uh, developing and maturing in our own practice of godliness. Instead, when the Lord has given us seasons wherein we are spared from such heavy trials, we should be quite much in God's Word. We should be taking in God's promises. And so these are simple things like uh, reading regularly in the Bible, but it's also memorizing the Bible. It's hiding it in your heart. It's taking up not only commandments, but promises and uh, meditating upon them. Think of one practical illustration. Many today have a temptation as soon as they get in the car to turn on the radio. Now, they may turn on a podcast. They may turn on something of a sermon. And of course, these things are lawful. But there's a world of difference between the passive hearing and listening to things and the act of meditating upon things. And here's the difference. Passivity is easy. Someone can listen to a hundred sermons a week and actually exercise their mind minimally. Someone can take one verse of the Bible for a week and exponentially outdo the one who listened to hundreds of sermons. What's the difference? The difference is the mind meditating, actively turning it over, praying through it, thinking on it, taking it in, considering comparisons and weighing it against the rest of Scripture and applying it to our lives. That act of meditation is the exercise of the soul. Now you can do that listening to a sermon. And of course, God has appointed the public preaching of His Word. But it's interesting, Christ will say things like, let this Word sink deep into your ears. The Scriptures will talk about hiding it in our hearts. All of which has the notion of activity in hearing. And so, whereas it's certainly good to listen to many sermons, and it can be certainly helpful to listen to multitudes of different preachers, faithful and so on. The essence of preparing for these things is not creating an index of how many sermons or books you've read, etc. It's actually exercising your soul upon the intake of His Word. That's what strengthens the soul. That's what builds up the soul so that when the affliction comes and chastening greets you every morning and lasts all the day long, your soul has been strengthened to feed upon Christ. So think of it this way. It was said of Mikhail Gorbachev that when he came and visited the United States, he wept because he saw grocery stores. He saw the grocery stores and he thought, how much food of so many different varieties are in the grocery stores available to the public. Whereas in his homeland, he knew what it was for people to wait hours upon hours in bread lines and so on. Well, true as that is, who finds themselves nourished 
in walking through a grocery store? And the answer is no one. What has to be done is you have to take the food and you have to eat it. Many Christians today have created grocery stores of sermons and books and Bible readings. And so they have this abundance of all of these things, but they have failed to actually take and meditate, eat and take in these things. And when affliction comes, it's no wonder that we find ourselves all of a sudden weakened in the way. And so if we would prepare, yes, get great libraries, yes, create an index of great sermons, but more than that, exercise faith, laying hold of the promises, pleading the promises, and drawing near to God, that when it is that the trial comes, that you may be able to say from the beginning, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Would you stand with me for